You're listening to On the Record Offscript. My name is Mark Coffin. And I'm Lisa Buchanan. So Lisa's here this week because we're introducing a new segment of the Offscript podcast where each week I'll have a co-host. This week it's Lisa, next week it may be somebody else, to help me unpack some of the stories that have happened in Atlantic Canadian politics. That's up first. Uh, Later in the show, I'll speak with Halifax Needham MLA, Lisa Roberts. If I'm going to do anything, I want it to be real, I guess. So, I mean, I think that's the challenge for me You know, and my big goal in the legislature and in committees and as an MLA is to um, is to make it as real as possible. Lisa Roberts was elected right before we launched the first season of Offscript, which for longtime listeners like Lisa Roberts is significant since the season basically follows the career path of an MLA, as told through the words of retired MLAs who we sat down with. One show to Lisa's. So we're going to talk about what happened in Atlantic Canadian politics this week. We'll have a chat with Lisa Roberts. Before we do any of that, we're going to get to know Lisa Buchanan a little bit. Lisa, you've been on the Springtide board uh, since Springtide started. You uh, also have your own podcast. We're just wondering if you could just tell uh, listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got into uh, being involved in politics, and maybe what you're doing with your, your new podcast. So my political life began at an early age because I grew up in a household with, uh, in particular, a father who was uh, very engaged in politics. Uh, in politics in Cape Breton and uh, had even run provincially in the 80s before I was born. Um, so I just grew up around politics as a conversation topic on a pretty much daily basis uh, from the time I was really, really young. Um, so couldn't even avoid it if I wanted to. Um, and then it got to a point where I didn't really want to avoid it. And I went on to <laughs> study political science uh, in my undergraduate degree and uh, got involved with student government and also uh, probably around that time in university uh, volunteered on campaigns for candidates at the federal provincial and municipal level got kind of involved with partisan politics at that stage in my life and uh, it seems like the deeper i got into it the less palatable it became uh, because i was simultaneously becoming better at critical thought i think is <laughs> what really happened there that the blind faith of partisanship I, I found off-putting and have kind of refocused in years since then on efforts like Springtide uh, around, you know, an interest in electoral reform and, and democratic engagement and things like that. And you recently started doing stand-up comedy. Yes, very recently. Uh, it hasn't even been a year, but uh, it's, it's a, I'm considering it a new hobby, uh, something that I've been interested in for a long time. And uh, I've only performed twice, and it uh, went very well both times. And uh, my friend Adam Myatt, who's a local stand-up here in Halifax, uh, he mm. and I have started this podcast um, called LOL, You're Gay, a gay comedy podcast, uh, oh, which is I've been available. Oh, i LOL, You're Gay. Well, it depends if you want to, how you want to verbalize the acronym, I suppose. Okay, LOL, You're Gay. I'll, I'll switch going forward. LOL, lol. Some people say lol. It looks the same on uh, iTunes or whatever uh, podcast subscription service you choose to subscribe on. Subtle, subtle plug to subscribe to the lol, you're gay podcast. <laughs> LOL, you're gay podcast. Yes. Cool. Well, uh, are you ready to help me unpack some of the stuff that happens in Atlantic Canadian politics this week? I think I'm ready. Yeah. 
So Justin Trudeau was in Sackville last week, and it was the first of his, what's seeming like, a, I guess, an annual tour of uh, places in Canada uh, where he does these town halls and really uh, more more of a Q&A session with the, with the prime minister, um, but an opportunity for people to ask their questions to him. I was just curious how you feel about being the first prime minister ever found guilty of a federal crime. Last year, I was diagnosed with ALS. The average life expectancy for someone with ALS is two to five years. If it is my right to be able to choose death due to my terminal illness, why am I not allowed the right to try experimental drugs that have passed a phase one medical study in Canada? If you were in my position, would you want the right to try? Uh, I'd want to try everything. I'd want to fight every, every minute of every day. How does your government plan to address this crisis, and where do they stand on a national autism strategy? I, I can imagine how, how uh, difficult things uh, must be for you, and uh, I'm so proud of the community that has supported you and uh, the obviously very strong network you have around you. Why are you deporting my brother? How come you're not stopping it? We came here, he was six years old, I was eight going on nine. We got taken into the permanent custody of the government. He got in trouble with the law. He did his time. Now that he got released, he got detained by immigration. And now he's looking at deportation. If it was your son, would you do anything to stop this? First of all, um, I'd like to thank you for coming here tonight. I'd like to thank uh, everyone in the community who has rallied around and uh, shared uh, your brother's story because it's a really important one. And I, and I know I speak for uh, most of us here in this room and indeed across the country. Did you catch any of this either in person or, or on the live stream? I only caught the last few minutes, but uh, I saw some clips afterward and uh, heard some punditry in response to it. And happened. I did go to the similar event that he had here in Dartmouth. I think it was hmm. last winter. I'm always, I guess, uh, when he did these last year and then I guess again this year, was reminded of my, I guess, curiosity around it because I'm not entirely sure uh, how I feel about it. I think the the cynics would write it off as, uh, you know, just a, a PR exercise and um, uh, the people who are, um, you know, perhaps either um, leaning towards his, uh, his ideology and partisanship or, or, or in want of, of better public engagement, I think, uh, see some light in the approach. Um, the, the thing I, I, I'm always curious about is the, the fact that, um, you know, regardless of how you feel about it, he's giving a platform to people who, who wouldn't otherwise have access to that much, um, attention of both, uh, other Canadians and, and the press. I know, when he, he made a bit of a slip up, I think, at the, the beginning of his talk and talking about our, our relationship with our unruly neighbor to the south. Thinking about our place in the world and how uh, Canada is, you know, dealing with a somewhat unruly neighbor these days. Uh, maybe not unruly, maybe unpredictable sometimes. Uh, but how we move forward in a... Within a few minutes. Uh, Huffington Post had uh, a story up about how Trudeau calls Trump unruly, which is, I think, the kind of furthest he's, he's gone in terms of being critical of, of the U.S. president. Um, but I think that also went for, you know, people who showed up to, to protest 
things like access to medicines, uh, experimental medicines, and deportations of uh, of children that have been in the care of the state. These are people that showed up at the uh, the Sackville Town Hall, which you know until this point hadn't necessarily had that that kind of attention. So I always thought that uh, you know regardless of how folks are, are feeling about it, it's interesting that it gives a platform. Um, and I think he's a, he would have to be aware of that at this point too. Yeah, and I think it can be. It can be all of these things simultaneously. It is surely a PR exercise because um, he's been doing this for a number of years now, and his handlers and his advisors know that this is one of his strengths is when he's in a room with everyday Canadians mm. with his shirt sleeves rolled up and his tie loosened, and that he, he appears to be very at ease in that environment, which is unusual for any human being, even a politician to be that comfortable in that sort of a situation. Um, so it, it plays to his strengths and is generally meant to be good PR. Mm. Um, but it's also a way for everyday Canadians to be heard, like you say, by the media, by the prime minister on issues that surely he's aware of because he's prepped for these right. sorts of events, uh, but not necessarily thinking about on a daily mm. basis in the way the people who ask the questions probably are. Yeah. So uh, the, the the story that caught my attention that kind of speaks to what you're uh, honing in on is uh, the one that compared uh, Trudeau's tactics for dealing with uh, hecklers or people with really strong views uh, to what uh, Seinfeld used with his, uh, I guess, hecklers early on in his career. So um, the article from the CBC, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, uh, said uh, Trudeau's tactics rarely vary when a questioner gets in his grill or an audience member tries to hijack the proceedings. He's polite, patient, lets his critics have a brief say without ever losing control of the proceedings. And then they uh, reference a quote from from Seinfeld, who, uh, you know, basically articulated that this is what he did uh, and called himself the heckle therapist, where when people would say something, uh, Seinfeld says, I would immediately become very sympathetic to them, help them try uh, to solve their problem, work out what was upsetting them. And, you know, he talked about it as being a fun avenue for a comedian and something that, um, if not endearing that him to the heckler would endear the audience to him and sort of get the audience on uh, his side. And I think, uh, you know, anybody who's been involved in politics for a while has been to these meetings where somebody shows up and has um, a strong view that is clearly derailing whoever's trying to run the meeting. Curious for, for your take on that, I guess, as, as someone who studies both, is engaged in both politics and comedy. Well, I'm, fortunately for me, in the two instances that I've performed stand-up, I have not had to deal <laughs> with any hecklers. Uh, that may never happen, uh, but I've definitely been in rooms um, with hecklers. And I think, I think I would divide them into two groups. There, so there's, and there's a difference to me as well between the folks who, who wait for their turn at the microphone and ask a very right. challenging question and come like express their frustration in, a, in an open way. And the people who I would categorize as the hecklers who don't wait for their turn at mm. the microphone and just, like you said, disrupt the proceedings. Um, and I think there's two types of hecklers. There's the folks who are there purely to cause a disruption and they don't care what the right. answer is. They don't actually want to know the answer because they're set in their ways and they have their opinion and it's cemented. There is a, another group of hecklers, and I think you see both of them in the clip that's on that CBC mm. article. Um, they're, they're the folks who, when, when confronted with that empathetic response from the person they're heckling, 
actually get taken off guard themselves mm. and wait and hear the answer and realize, oh, they actually are willing to have a conversation about this. Maybe that's not what I was expecting coming into this room. Um, I think all, all hecklers broadly overestimate their ability to project their voices in rooms <laughs> uh, en masse, uh, com considering that the other person always has an advantage and that they have a microphone yeah. and an amplification system in their hand. Um, so the dynamic is always uh, unbalanced. Um, and generally, the room is not on the side of hecklers. It, it, not 100% of the time, but uh, it's not difficult, I don't think, for either a comedian or a politician dealing with a heckler uh, to get the, the rest of the audience on their side because the audience is there to, ostensibly, to listen to the person mm -hmm. at the microphone. And they get upset when a heckler derails the, the order of Yeah, events. certainly. And I think there's also a degree to which the the heckler or the person that comes out um, perhaps somewhat naive. I always assume there's a bit of naivety because I think they they probably um, maybe underestimate how how interested or how caring the person on the other end actually is. And I think there's sort of this presumption that if you presume you're going to get an unempathetic response, um, you're not going to be very empathetic in the way you deliver it. And, uh, I also like the distinction of people, people with a tough question versus, you know, people there to disturb the, the proceeding. All right, let's talk about PEI there. Mm -hmm. So there was a cabinet shuffle in PEI last week. And I think, um, it's largely been framed by, uh, pundits and, and opposition members as sort of the pre-election shuffle, which for, for people who um, may not be familiar with why that's uh, an important thing, I think the idea is that, you know, pre-election, there's an opportunity to, um, I guess, uh, I see it, there's two ways to frame it. One, you want to, um, you know, put people out there that are going to be running an offering again um, uh, in in the upcoming election for the purposes of, uh, I guess, the uh, on the angelic side, ensuring that the departments and that the government has some sort of continuity uh, of, you know, institutional memory. And then maybe on the bit more cynical side, uh, because you want to give people a chance to, um, who are going to be running again, a chance to be in the spotlight and, and get some recognition for uh, what they're doing um, as, you know, head of a government department and also the, the pre-election kind of spending promises that would come. Um, but uh, so, so that's uh, w what happened. And then there was two, two interesting things that I guess trickled out of it that caught my attention. Um, and the first being that, uh, and it was an argument that I hadn't, um, hadn't considered in, in full before, uh, but the idea that uh, so the PEI Advisory Council on the status of women uh, responded to uh, the cabinet shuffle in anticipation that it would be um, preceding an election which uh, might be earlier than the fixed election date uh, that would be uh, having the election, I think, in late 2019. Um, and and the idea here being that uh, it, this hurts people who don't have the the privilege or the the flexibility to um, to drop something at uh, drop their their work their their childcare responsibilities at any given moment and uh, and run for office if they're thinking to be candidates. So uh, the director of the the council for the status of women said to be free to campaign, women often need to make arrangements not only around their paid work but also around their unpaid work, such as childcare or elder care. 
Um, and knowing an election date in advance allows more time for women to make these plans, presumably, you know, book off vacation time or unpaid leave. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, if the election date just happens to be called uh, whenever the, the premier uh, of PEI in this case uh, is uh, feeling like calling it, then, then that leaves people in the lurch a bit. Um, I hadn't, uh, yeah, I guess I hadn't considered this argument before. What do you think of this? I don't know if I had thought about fixed election dates in particular as a barrier for women either, to be honest. Um, seems like, you know, just about everything is a barrier to women and minorities and uh, the underrepresented from getting involved mm. in politics. So this is just another one on the list in my mind. But um, I think I think it's worth pointing out that um, some people will read that quote in the in the article and say, well, men have jobs if they're primarily the breadwinners they have to make plans mm. too in relation to their their work if they decide to run for office and that's true um but when it comes to issues like child care and elder care those are things that they certainly affect men in some cases but they disproportionately right. affect women uh and present a, a barrier more often to women than to men um but in terms of the uh the sort of I don't know if inconvenience is the right word, but um, the d planning that has to go into making a decision to run for, for office, um, that's something that would affect anybody in a, you know, in a precarious employment situation where they can't leave, um, people, anybody who's mm -hmm. marginalized um, is not going to be in a position to, on what, six weeks notice, eight weeks notice decide oh i'm going to take a chance at changing mm -hmm. my job but and have to potentially give up the one i have right now yeah and it's it's interesting to think of i mean i can hear some of the uh, I guess, uh, friends and, and uh, I guess listeners I know to this podcast that will um, rem remind us the, uh, the fact that constitutionally it's very difficult to have any kind of legislation that ensures fixed election dates. And of course, PEI has a legisl legislation that ensures fixed election dates, which um, under the advisement of the premier, the lieutenant governor can, can always overrule and say we're having an election now. Um, I'm also reminded of the the principle that I've heard from accessibility advocates, which is, and I I see this as a bit of a you know it's it's giving people better access to uh, democratic participation if we can do things that make it easier for uh, people who would be disadvantaged to uh, participate. And the I guess the the line I've heard from accessibility advocates a lot is that things that make society more accessible uh, for people with disabilities tend to have the effect of making things better for everybody. If you think of, um, you know, accessible doorways or having closed captioning on television, these are all things that, um, you know, even people without disabilities take advantage of from time to time and in some cases regularly um, because it makes life better for everybody. So I think of this as being uh, one of those things, as with probably a lot of barriers that, you know, if it's a barrier to uh, someone who has a lot of barriers already, it's probably, you know, at least a minor inconvenience to, to other folks that don't, don't have as much barriers or perhaps have more privilege. So the other thing that happened uh, as a result of the, the cabinet shuffle this week was, uh, I guess, sparked by the fact that PEI 
um, has the, the lowest share of women in cabinet uh, of any uh, province in Canada. And this was pointed out by a press release from the PEI Coalition for Women in Government, different than uh, the Advisory Council on the Status of Women. Uh, this is a more independent, uh, not part of government group. And in a press release they issued, they noted that the current cabinet includes only two women. We're extremely disappointed that MLA Kathleen Casey was not included among the new appointments. Um, and then they go on to just, you know, note the, that the PEI cabinet is highly underrepresentative of, of women. And they note that the critical mass uh, suggested by the UN is uh, 30% uh, women, both in cabinet and in legislatures. So that's uh, noteworthy on its own. Um, but I wanted to play a couple of clips that the MLA, the coalition referred to, um, was uh, featured in in an interview with the CBC uh, Information Morning Show and PEI, Matt Rainey uh, did with her, where uh, kind of an awkward topic for conversation, but um, he interviewed Kathleen Gacy about her not being in cabinet. And here's some of what it sounded like. And it seems every time there's a cabinet shuffle, your name comes up as a potential candidate. What's your reaction when you hear all that? Well, I appreciate the uh, confidence that uh, people have in me to think that I should be a cabinet minister. Do you want the job? Well, Matt, I, when I was first elected in 2007, uh, Robert Giz uh, gave me the tremendous privilege um, to be the Liberal nominee for Speaker. And I soon discovered the important... Um, roles of the three branches of government. And in order to have good governance, uh, all three branches of government should not intertwine. But would you like to get that call to, to come to the cabinet table? I think in 2007, you know, when you're elected with a new team and it's a new challenge, I think initially, yes, um, I would have loved to have been in cabinet. But once um, I became the speaker of the legislative branch, um, I certainly learned the important work that the legislative branch does and in giving the tools to all of the members to carry out their jobs. So um, I took a keen interest in the legislative branch and uh, have a huge respect for that branch of government. And if you get that call to be in cabinet, what would be your reaction? Premier is very um, aware of my um, appreciation for the legislative branch. So are you saying that, that you have stated that you don't want to be in cabinet? I have not stated that I don't want to be in cabinet, but they do know that I'm very happy where I am. That seems like an awkward premise for an interview. It's super awkward. The premise of the question is terribly awkward. Uh, and you're essentially asking somebody, didn't you really want that job that you didn't necessarily apply for? by becoming a politician, because not everybody who gets elected is going to become a cabinet minister, just the way the numbers shake right. out. Um, but then add on to that awkwardness the fact that he's asking her this question only because she's a woman who mm. wasn't chosen to be in the cabinet. So I thought, I, I like you, I don't, uh, I don't know anything about, um, about her as a politician, but, um, I thought that she acquitted herself well in the interview by pointing out that, you know, despite this not getting included in this and getting shuffled into the cabinet, that she has accomplished things uh, as a woman, mm. politi a female politician. And, uh, you know, she's happy with those accomplishments. And um, I have always been under the impression, and maybe it's changed, that uh, when it comes to things like cabinet positions and any any sort of appointment situation that uh, mm -hmm. if you're asked that question 
you, the polite way to answer, the expected way to answer is to say that if I'm asked to serve, I, I would be happy to do that. Uh, and to not criticize right. the decisions of the leader of your party or the premier of your province uh, and who that, that premier chose at the end of the day. But that's yeah, just me. That would seem... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that would seem fair. And I think, uh, I mean, it's complicated by the fact that, you know, she uh, hasn't decided from the sounds of things whether she's going to run again. So, um, and comparing that with sort of like the the logic we shared earlier about why uh, premiers would shuffle a cabinet uh, leading up to an election that, you know, it kind of makes sense why uh, she might not have gotten an invitation to cabinet this time around if uh, she intends or if she's uh, seriously considering not running. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the other thing I, I was curious about is sort of the 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 way that the coalition um, kind of f- pointed the finger at her in um, in the press release, uh, you know, stating not that we're disappointed. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult because they couldn't issue a press release and say, we're disappointed that there aren't more women in cabinet, um, knowing that there was only, you know, one additional choice that they could put in, but they, they did seem to go out of their way to name, uh, the individual in, uh, in question. And I, I guess, yeah, I just wonder about that as a, as an advocacy, uh, tactic or a, a media, uh, tactic to, you know, is that, uh, is that helpful in the long run? I don't know. They're in a sort of difficult situation, like you say, where there's only one way to increase the number beyond appointing somebody to cabinet from an, another party. In this instance, I don't know that it makes all that much of a difference because she's the only one naming her or not. Uh, yeah. It doesn't change the fact that she was their only other option if they wanted to increase the number of women. Yeah, it certainly could could have easily been just sort of like, well, you know, this is the conclusion that people will draw. Let's not make them read between the lines. I could see that. Yeah. I could see that approach. I, th- I think it's also worth uh, pointing out. I know this was originally on the radio, obviously, but when they posted it on the CBC website for the headline that they chose for the, uh, the audio clip, uh, they opted with the wording female MLA view on cabinet shuffle as if she has no name and it's she is yeah. giving the perspective of uh, all women uh, and more specifically uh, female MLAs. Yeah, there's this there's a real tendency to leave people's name, w- leave women's names out of headlines when the articles and interviews are about mm. them. Well, Lisa, thank you for helping me unpack some of the stories that were going around in Atlanta Canadian politics this week. Thanks for having me. Where can people find you and or your podcast? People can find me uh, very inactively on Twitter, uh, more actively on Instagram at Lisa underscore Buchanan, U-C-H-A-N-A-N. And they can find the podcast at L-O-L-U-R-G-A-Y-P-O-D. That's L-O-L, you are gay pod. And we're on Facebook as well. All right. Thanks, Lisa. That was Lisa Buchanan, Offscript co-host for the week. And that was a new segment that we're experimenting with. I'd like to make it a recurring thing. What this podcast is meant to be about is an opportunity to talk about what's happening in politics in the region, a chance to talk about the news for people who generally aren't content just hearing the political news, but are also interested in looking at it through the lens of how we can do politics better. And better, in the view of Springtide, really means looking at how those that sit in or aspire to elected office can do better, looking at how those who are 
activists or advocates trying to influence politics from the outside can do better. And for folks who are too busy for any of that, perhaps it means simply exploring how we can digest and process what's happening so that those small political actions that we can all find time to make can be more meaningful ones. And I think talking about what happened in our region through that lens each week is one way into having that conversation. If you'd like that too, and if during your week you see something happening that has something to do with how people are practicing politics in Atlantic Canada, uh, either inspiring stories or infuriating ones, uh, particularly local stories happening in smaller communities that we might not catch as easily, if you see those stories, send us a note about them. You can email the show at offscript at springtide.ngo. Of course, you can also reach us on Twitter at springtide co facebook.com slash springtide co or on instagram this one's different at springtide ngo and again the email for the show was offscript at springtide.ngo if you're on those platforms anyway you can also share this episode of the podcast using the short link springtide.ngo slash os23 that's for offscript episode number 23 Okay, up now we have an interview with Lisa Roberts. Lisa Roberts is the MLA for the District of Halifax Needham, which covers much of North End Halifax, and she's a member of the NDP. Lisa was elected in the summer of 2016 in a by-election. For long-time listeners of the podcast, you'll know that we started our first season of the podcast in the fall of 2016. For newer listeners, our first season followed the career path of a typical Nova Scotia MLA through the stories and voices of almost 40 former MLAs that we interviewed. One of the groups of people we had in mind and had hoped to reach was new MLAs, however far in the future, and people who work with and, and for them, so they could learn from those MLAs, past MLAs, successes, and mistakes. Anyways, Lisa Roberts, newly elected at that point, was a regular listener to the podcast. So that's the premise for the start of the conversation. We do talk more broadly about what the process of learning to be an MLA is like, what she's trying to accomplish as an MLA, uh, more interesting to me, how she's approaching it, and uh, end up having a conversation about whether political theater is a good thing or a bad thing. One name that we both mentioned a couple times from uh, his appearance in earlier episodes of the podcast that might not be familiar to everybody is Mark Parent. Mark Parent was the former environment minister in the PC government of Rodney McDonald here in Nova Scotia. And we talk about the interview he did with us, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. All right, here's my chat with Lisa Roberts, which took place on December 11th of last year. So you listened to our podcast and we interviewed a lot of people from a previous time in politics. Has enough changed that there are areas perhaps where we might have led someone like you, who I would say is probably our target demo for the podcast. Um, were there any areas where we led you astray? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I found the podcast um, to be hugely helpful in just orienting me to what is going on to what you know what I'm what I've signed up to be a part of um and and for me what I listen to it for is the different experiences of different MLAs reflecting on where they were able to accomplish something in the house like I'm I'm listening I'm listening for that kind of those possibilities right because um, you had spent a lot of time working in community organizations that I think we spoke back when you were first elected, and it sounded like there was a lot of work that had felt somewhat similar to at the constituency, at the constituency level. There, cer- there certainly is, um, but but I would like to bring 
um, that into the legislature and into the committee work as well. I mean, I'm I'm sort of impatient or or not satisfied to just accept it as um, unchangeable. And uh, I mean, for example, I've told a number of people that I just found I found the interview with Mark Parent just fascinating. And I'm in the legislature now where you know, both the the liberals and the progressive conservatives frequently cite or, or frequently make reference to the accomplishments that Nova Scotia has made on the environment front mm-hmm. and on the um, reduction of, of greenhouse gases in particular, which which stems from the environmental sustainability, you know, environmental sustainability and... Environmental Goals and Sustainable Prosperity Act. Thank you. EGSPA. Thank you, EGSPA. And so it's it's really fascinating to, to, to know the story of how it happened. And I, I, I actually was invited in to give a... a lecture talk uh, to a group of students at Dalhousie in the schools of sustainability. And I said, like, I think my lesson that I took away from that is be ready. Like, you don't really know when the when the context will change enough that something becomes possible. And so you have to have an idea of, yeah, you have to have an idea of like, what what is the change that you would like to see? And, and be ready with it. And also, of course, be trying to work towards creating the context where something like that could happen. Um, anyhow, so I, f- I found it very, very interesting to listen. Also, Leonard Prera, um, who, you know, was was not a cabinet minister in the NDP government, mm-hmm. but clear. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was hoping we would be able to share more from his interview, but it happened in such a loud coffee shop and it was like this balance between like should we should we play that really interesting comments and risk losing a bunch of listeners because they're like i'm done with this noisy podcast but thankfully we've come a long way you have i the audio quality of your podcast is like really up there up there with the best yeah so you touched on this a minute ago but when you were first elected when we chatted you were talking about kind of finding out what the superpowers of an mla are have you figured out what they are yet I mean, I would I would continue to say that um, the primary superpower that I have identified is um, the the power to get people to call you back. Huh. So pretty much anywhere in any organization in Nova Scotia, um, be it government or nonprofit, mm-hmm. if I if I seriously want to connect with somebody to have a conversation. Um, they will return my call. And so it's a question of figuring out, you know, what what is it that I want to accomplish through those conversations? And often those conversations happen in response to um, constituent cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think I think in some ways, one one place where I would maybe differ with some of the MLAs who you interview, um, it, um, in the podcast, is that I think um, sometimes constituent concerns can actually lead to um, lead back to the legislature. Like they can point to mm-hmm. gaps, maybe not always in legislation, but certainly in government practice, where you know there's there is this there is this group that is 
excluded from certain benefits Mm -hmm. um, or whose situation isn't anticipated, wasn't anticipated when certain programs were developed and and whose needs and concerns need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And so... I mean, I'm always, I'm always happy. And, and really my constituency assistant does a lot of the work of, you know, navigating people to resources and advocating for them. And often that is effective, but there's the odd case where you're like, oh, you know, this, this is, this is something where, um, you're not alone, um, but you might be part of a small group Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, perhaps by communicating about this set of concerns to, um, to a deputy minister um, mm-hmm. or to a minister or raising it in the house, I can, I can like pave, at least pave the ground for making a change yeah. in government policy. And that sounds kind of different than what we, th- I kind of interpreted as the goal. And I think Louise, who did a lot of the interviews, interpreted as the kind of reason to bring those things forward, which was, uh, at least as we heard it, not often to affect government-wide policy change, but often to sort of, you know, if it was a road or a specific individual that was having a problem, to like find the right lever to turn to actually get that specific road while ignoring perhaps the larger policy issue that led to this road in this area being degraded or that individual in a common situation not getting what they needed. Yeah. I think I'm very lucky in Halifax Needham um, because there are almost no provincial roads. <laughs> In my district. So you can just say, call your counselor? Well, um, more so, actually, I just had a meeting recently with my municipal, with the, my municipal counterparts uh-huh. and also with Gary Burrell, who's like the neighboring MLA to me. And we were actually talking about municipal roads and we were talking about what um, changes to the Motor Vehicle Act would be required for um, uh, the municipality to be able to lower the speed limit on municipal roads. And, and so it's, it's just, it's a different set of concerns, but I don't have people lobbying me to deal with potholes right. on a particular rural road. Uh-huh. Yeah. So <laughs> that um, must be a relief as someone who lives on a bumpy rural road. I, oh. I think more because I didn't, when we started this podcast, so it was a bit more of a critical tone, but the, the challenge, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. I went over a rural road uh, on the Eastern Shore to bring my daughter to summer camp this summer. And it you was, it was perilous. It was absolutely perilous. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I wanted to play a clip um, from an early uh, off script episode where um, the Green Party leader for PEI, we actually played a clip of him talking about in the legislature, his struggles uh, in being an MLA. And, and then just ask you if it, uh, um, or struggles in learning to become an MLA is probably a fair way of putting it. And just ask you if it at all resonates from, from your experience in the last year or so. This is a good moment perhaps for me to describe what I imagine my job as a legislator to be. It's a complicated and multifaceted vocation for sure. And I, I won't pretend that I have a really good handle on what it's about after only a year and a half in the job. When I was a dentist, I spent 33 years becoming familiar and good at that job. I used to go into the office in the morning and I would feel entirely confident that nothing that came before me would stymie me, would would create an issue for me. I was familiar, I was comfortable with the job. That's not true as I stand here as a legislator. I feel like I am learning extraordinarily fast and I have much to learn. But I do think 
that some of aspects of our job are of paramount importance. The development, analysis, critiquing, and potential amendment of bills and motions is for me of ultimate importance. We are legislators. That is what we are here to do. When I first came to office, I have to fully admit that I struggled with this. I'm not familiar, I was not at that time familiar with the language of legislation. And I had nobody to turn to with whom to discuss the impl implications of the bills before me. I'm doing much better now, but I still feel that it's something I have to learn, I have to get better at. I'm improving, but I'm getting better. I forgot we had included the slow theme fade music. music. Does that, any of that resonate with your experience in becoming an MLA? Absolutely. And I would even admit to being um, a bit slow to capture um, the and, and really kind of grapple with the fact that what I signed up to be was a legislator. Mm. Um, because I think in, in my... You know, why I stepped up was not to be a legislator, but to be a leader. And for me, leading is not, a leading is about like being an ally to great people in community who are trying to do good things mm -hmm. and uh, trying to support them in a variety of ways and um, amplifying the voices that sometimes aren't heard and asking good questions. Um, and so it, it is, I do find it challenging um, to come back to that. And how do you, how are we gonna, how are we gonna like amend a bill? Right. Yeah. You know, and what bill can we do that would address this? Um, Especially be, be, as a minority. A, part, a minority party and majority legislature. Yeah, yeah. So any bill that we do put forward or um, amendment that we put forward on a government bill is exceedingly unlikely to be passed or right. or even seriously considered. So, but I'd, I'd, I'd qualify that a bit because, I mean, I did have the experience this fall of um, seeing PTSD legislation. Yeah, um, yeah, you call it Dave Wilson's bill. In fact, it was a government bill, and Dave had introduced that legislation several times over. And finally, oh, I realized it was actually a government bill. And finally, the government basically took Dave Wilson's bill huh. and and put it forward. I think I've got that right. I think I've got that <laughs> right. Shit, I might not. Please check, because otherwise, we have I'm an idiot. Fact checkers. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there are cases where um, opposition work mm -hmm. um, does actually end up in legislation, and that can change things uh, for people. Um, it does seem that like the the and, likelihood of that happening in it's a long the position game. You're in, yeah, it's a long game. It's a very long game, and um, but at the same time, it's like so. I I wasn't around when Dave started talking about PTSD in the house and and the need for presumptive coverage, right. um, but I I I think about what can I be talking about now that is seeding a possibility that will kind of flower in the future. You mm -hmm. know, um, I think I think 
that is that is another superpower of uh of MLAs. And again, it's it's a long game, but like what can you talk about in the house that becomes part of the public consciousness mm-hmm. in terms of something that must be addressed? Um and and you just can't predict how long it'll be between right, yeah. that initial introduction um in the legislature and of of the topic or of the of the thought and you know some results i mean one of the things that i made a member statement um in the legislature on the last day of this session and it was just following hmm. the uh the passing of that ptsd legislation which you know expands expands the group um, who who can have presumed coverage, and I, I was so impressed at the um, like the the heartfelt comments on all sides of the house um, as people spoke to support that bill, mm. and I introduced something which I just I hadn't I learned uh, through another podcast um, in just the last couple of years. Um, which is that uh, while something like 20% of um, of soldiers who are involved in active cam- combat will end up experience PTSD, something like 50% of survivors of rape will experience PTSD. Wow. And so um, it's described as being more psychologically sexual assault um, you know, of a serious, you know, rape mm-hmm. nature um, is more psychologically toxic than war. Than war. Wow. Um, and so I, I made a member statement about that in the House. Mm. Um, and I don't know what the result of that will be. Um, and I'm not sure right now, like, what sort of legislative mm-hmm. response to that even could be. But um, you know, I kind of invited the fellow, my fellow, fellow members of the House to mm-hmm. reframe their thinking about PTSD as a women's rights issue. Um, and, mm-hmm. and yeah, and, and I don't even know, I don't even know where I would want to go with that in terms of legislation at this point. But, um, I mean, it made an impression on me when I learned that. Yeah. And maybe it'll make an impression on them and, and you know, I don't know what the result could be. I think there's something to be said for the, you know, reg- like legislating seems like, uh, I don't know which step, but it, it hardly seems like the first step to social progress on an issue, even amongst legislators. Like it, the social awareness of a statistic that's as heavy as the one you just shared feels like it, there, there's value in sharing that kind of stuff with folks that, um, you know, are on opposite sides or, uh, in a space that, and, and in some way, there's like a, a a unifying factor to realizing some of those hard truths from from what you're sharing that can be probably more valuable than typical wag the finger sort of thing we see. Yeah, and and one of the things that I've worked on and where I've gotten a lot of satisfaction is figuring out. I mean, so just to back up for a second, I mean, I used to be a journalist. Uh-huh. Um, I like to write. Oh, so you know how to do this. I, I, I kind of do. <laughs> I, I'm better at asking questions and answering them still, maybe. Um, but I used to be a journalist and I like to write. And so um, when I'm not feeling kind of really despairing, which I do sometimes, uh-huh. um, I try to 
uh, treat my member statements as meaningful, as meaningful mm-hmm. opportunities, you know? Right. And uh, I think, I mean, they have to be one minute or less spoken, uh-huh. which I, I kind of think it must be a little bit like the challenge of a haiku, you know? Like, yeah. how can you pack something important into a very small, you mm-hmm. know, about 120 word package? Um, but one of the things that I've done with that is, um, you know, they get published on my website. Um, I will send, you know, printed copies of them to organizations or individuals who I mention. And, and often mm-hmm. I often I, I use them to um, try to boost and praise and thank um, folks in in my community, but also beyond my community, just in Nova Scotia, who are showing mm-hmm. uh, leadership for this sort of society, um, the sort of, you know, caring, just mm-hmm. uh, creative society that I think we want to be living in here. Um, and uh, and it's been really gratifying. Uh, and I, I recognize it's just sort of, you know, it's social media, what impact does it have? But it's been gratifying to see other people then posting like photos of the piece of paper that they got from me saying this is so cool um because even though it's in Hansard like most people won't go to Hansard right (laughs) so I can think immediately of like four different cases where I have seen people sharing on their personal Facebook pages and they tag me in and then and then their networks are seeing that they have been recognized mm-hmm. and that's meaningful and it's and it's 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 relatively easy and it means that I have great content uh, for, <laughs> for the legislature media. right so right, that too <laughs> so so like what is that a super I mean it's basically a superhero power of just you know being able to thank people in a way that you know feels a little bit public and official and Mm -hmm. um on the record right um and but maybe it'll put some steam in sales that might otherwise be flagging because there's an awful lot of folks in Nova Scotia who are working really really hard without often you know um, adequate thanks or resources yeah what do you want to do in your time as an MLA? What do you want to have done, I guess? I have I have different lists. Um, I, I do. Uh, I would like to see um, the work of committees, um, which you signaled in one of the last podcasts, um, be made more meaningful and effective, uh, I think. I think there's so much work that has happened in terms of group facilitation and, you know, how to how to actually get work done that has evolved over the last hundred years mm-hmm. and I think our committees are you know underperform um, to the to the point where it feels like it's it's almost pro forma that we show up mm-hmm. and we ask questions if I'm gonna do anything I want it to be real I guess so I mean I think that's the challenge for me you know, and my big goal in the legislature and in committees and as an MLA is to um, is to make it as real as possible. And it's something that comes up mm-hmm. um, in a number of the interviews where people say, you know, it's theater, right? You don't and want I'm it to not be an actor. <laughs> I'm not an actor. And and we're talking about our province. We're talking about uh-huh. our society. And we're talking about, you know, a moment in time when uh, 
the challenges that are coming down the pipe are are greater than the challenges that are behind us, I I think, in terms of mm-hmm. climate change and, and what that has to mean for like real transformation of our society right. and and the commitment that we're going to need to uh, taking care of each other and making sure that people have enough um, and already, you know, around the edges and and margins you know there's many people in many communities that are really struggling and so uh, my my goal is to show up and be real and uh th- there are moments in the house when people quiet down and listen mm-hmm. um and i think it is when people are speaking from a, an authentic place mm. and Again, there are ways of sharing that out. You know, there are ways of. I shared my my speech on. Uh, I shared my speech on the third reading of the uh, cap and trade legislation mm-hmm. uh, online, and I don't know if a lot of people have have watched it, but like I was speaking from an authentic place, you know, right. and uh, and I hope that even I hope that the fact that I am there. And speaking to that from a position of genuine concern and a genuine, you know, desire for us to make good decisions and and show leadership will mean that somehow in the setting of legislation, because that mm-hmm. bill was like remarkably empty of of content, um, that there'll be there'll be a sense of pressure to up um, up the game, mm-hmm. you know. So that's something that I kind of wonder about um, on the theater piece, because we heard that it's theatrical. And there's a part of me, because we also know that, like, regardless of what happens in the legislature, there are going to be other spaces where power is going to live more comfortably. And I think regardless of who's in power, there's going to be pre-meetings, there's going to be caucus meetings, there's going to be cabinet meetings. Um, So I've got a theory that perhaps it's not really... The complaint isn't that it's theater, but it's pretty bad theater. (laughs) You know, if if, uh, you can have authenticity and that's not always matched with authenticity, but if you have sort of like if somebody ups their theater game, this is a space where that might be rewarded. And if the theater is some, some way a reflection and maybe even an amplification of the authenticity, then maybe that's a worthy goal to strive for in a space like the legislature. Well, and I, I and I guess that's what I'm doing when um when I care and when I put the effort in to like uh-huh. have words um yeah, like to craft words. Cuz you're you're pre-writing. I I'm, a lot I'm of this. I prepare the majority of my own member statements. Uh-huh. Uh and when I am making speeches, I've either written them or I've I, I'm actually speaking off the cuff, but with points that I've right. um, drafted and also with notes from uh, from research staff. Right. So uh-huh. so it is, I mean, it, politics is a team sport. Totally. Um, and, and I just, I happen to be the one out there in front. But f- I think, I think because I am a writer um, in there are circumstances where I actually want to be speaking my own words. Right. Um, and, and regardless, I don't want to speak words that feel false in my mouth. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mark parent also said that. Oh, maybe I'm quoting him. I was impressed with <laughs> well, his I, interview. I've never his, met the man. His direct words were, I was a better writer than my staff. 
and and I'm I'm a good writer. <laughs> um, the the challenge is literally the time yeah. and and how many different files on which I'm expected to have something competent to say. But mm-hmm. that's I mean that's the other reality of being a third party is uh, you don't have the staff that you wish you had. I mean you're up against the government yeah. in the house and they have all the staff. The government have the whole public service behind them. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so unfair. They don't just have their caucus staff. They have the government. You know, they have all the government resources. So I'd say another superpower that I I feel is significant is that we can use our relationships across the province to get um, to get analysis and get content. Mm-hmm. And I, for me, that's really, really important because we are rarely in our little caucus um, going to be, be the people who are closest to the ground of knowing what the issues are. And oftentimes, mm-hmm. you know, organizations don't want to uh, publicly allow, ally themselves with uh, the NDP or any party um, on a particular on a particular issue. But uh, again, because I come out of the nonprofit field, often uh-huh. I can like, I can send a text to someone and say, what, you know, like, what is the issue with this? Like, what, what, what are the two things that you want to get across? Right. And I love, I love um, doing that. Cause again, I think it's meaningful to, to the folks who, yeah. yeah, to the community, to the, uh-huh. to the people who are slogging it out, trying to make our province work. Hmm. Cool. Well, you mentioned time, and I know we uh, said we'd keep this short. So thanks for uh, spending some time chatting and being on the podcast. My pleasure. And thank you very much for producing the podcast. I am I am truly and, and unendingly grateful. Oh, it's fun to do. All right. Thanks, Lisa. That is this week's episode of On the Record Offscript. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, we think you'll really enjoy getting it every week. You can subscribe to the podcast, search for On the Record Offscript wherever you find podcasts. If you're not into podcasts, if what I said just now means nothing to you, you can still subscribe by email and go to the page where you uh, listen to this podcast on our website. If you're not already there, it's springtide.ngo slash OS23. Punch in your email address on the right-hand side sidebar, and we'll send you an email each Wednesday when there's a new show to listen to. Offscript is a podcast produced by Springtide. We are a Canadian charity committed to helping people lead Jane through politics with their integrity intact. Find us on the web, www.springtide.ngo. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash springtideco, Twitter, at springtideco, Instagram, springtideNGO, and you can find me on Twitter, at Mark Coffin. There are a couple of things you can do to help the show. Big one is rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts. If you only have a second, make a star rating. If you have a whole minute, write a one-sentence review that tells us and others why you plan to keep listening. You can share the podcast on Facebook. Find an easy-to-share link at springtide.ngo slash OS23. Better yet, if you thought of somebody in your life during the conversation who might appreciate hearing some of what was talked about, why not just send them that link directly? It's always nice to be thought of, so I'm sure that person will appreciate it. And I know I should leave a review on iTunes and I've never done it. And it shouldn't, and it shouldn't be that complicated. It shouldn't be that complicated, but somehow it's like a thing I just can't do. It's ridiculous. I know. We're going to do a live show somewhere and then I'm just going to like take two minutes out of the evening. To instruct us? All right, guys. (laughs) It's not that hard.
I know. I just, I don't listen. We're recording, so maybe I'll use that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, permission granted.